But I thought, screw it, I'm out of here. And I said, you know, basically, I said, you're on your own. And it, it's something that I, I regret to this day. Even at 19, he had this sort of raspy soul voice. Yeah, I mean, he, he, he knocked me out. And of course, that was what, nearly 53 years ago, and he's been knocking me out ever since. Yeah, it's this pretty hefty looking shark about <laughs> four foot. And he brings it into the room through, through the window. Run the bath quick. So I thought, anything for a quiet life, Jesus. Boz picks this thing up, it's slapping away, puts it in the bar, we pull the shower curtains and get the hell out of there. Hello and welcome to episode 31 of Vintage Rock Pod, the ultimate twice-weekly classic rock podcast that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson, thanks as always for hitting play. Now, you're in for a treat with this week's guest. I'm so excited for you to hear this. I had the pleasure of chatting with Simon Kirk, the legendary drummer who, along with Paul Rogers, formed the amazing bands Free and Bad Company. In fact, Simon is the only ever-present member of Bad Company right from the 70s through to today, a band that shifted more than 40 million albums worldwide. Now, if this is the first time you've checked out the Vintage Rock Pod podcast, please hit follow or subscribe on whatever device you're listening to and listen back to the other incredible interviews too that we've had on throughout the series so far we've had some really big names including seven rock and roll hall of famers and many other classic rock legends too but for this episode then as you can imagine there's an awful lot to talk about with simon free formed in the 60s so 50 plus years of amazing music and um, we sat and we talked for about an hour and loads of different topics as well so there's so much for you to hear we talk about how the bands formed the big hits how the bbc nearly banned all right now there's the regrets around Paul Kossoff, addictions. He's very honest about the Brian Howe era of Bad Company when Paul Rogers left the band. There's stories about Led Zeppelin, and as you'll have heard from the start there, a story about a shark in a bathtub. Yep. Simon will be 72 in a couple of months, but you honestly would never guess from how he looks. Remarkable, considering he's lived the life of a rock star to the fullest, too. So here you go. Please enjoy this. It's my chat with the wonderful Simon Kirk. Well, it's a pleasure to speak with you, Simon. Um, we've got an awful lot to go through. I mean, you've got one heck of a career and a history and some incredible bands that you've, you've been in and some incredible artists and musicians that you've worked <laughs> worked with and performed with as well. So I'm looking forward to diving into this. Now, let's kind of go back to near the start then. Um, yourself and, and Paul Kossoff, you're in a band. Um, so how did yourself and, and Paul meet the other Paul and Andy then to form Free? I was with, uh, yeah, as you said, I was with Paul Kossoff in this blues band called Black Cat Bones, and we were sort of riding the crest of uh, the blues boom in England in uh, 1968. After about three or four months, Koss said to me, uh, we became really yeah. quite close friends. He said, listen, I'm, I'm kind of tired of playing these uh, blues standards, you know, Crossroads and Rock Me Baby and, you know, four o'clock in the morning blues. I've met this singer in a, um, a band called Brown Sugar across town, and I jammed with him, you know, all secret. And I've arranged to get together with him because he wants to leave his band and form a band with me. Would you like to play drums? And I said, I'd love to because uh, I really like Koss. I love his playing. And then we met Paul Rogers, and it was like, wow, this guy is such a good singer. And he played very good blues harp as well and guitar. He, was, he played a lot of things, uh, Rogers. Uh, Paul Rogers. Uh, I, so I referred to Paul as Paul and Paul Kossoff <laughs> as Koss. Koss, yeah. Future reference. So me and Koss, we went over to meet him. We were in someone's house. Paul Rogers was in this guy's house. Uh, and we had a little jam, you know, in, in the sitting room. 
And, um, you know, Koss called me that night and said, you know, he wants to form a band with me and uh, would you like to play drums? I said, yes. So then we had to find a bass player. And that was um, a stroke of fortune. Koss knew Alexis Corner, who was, you know, like the godfather of the blues scene in England at that time. And straight away he said, I know, I know a guy. He's a kid. He's 15 years old. He played six months with John Mayle. We went, wow, really? Anyway, he's playing at this club in a couple of days. He gave us the address and we went down to see, um, it was Keith Hartley's band. Keith Hartley was a drummer who again played with John Mayall and he had his own band. And um, the place was packed and, and uh, me and Paul and Koss were in the audience. And then up on stage jumps this, yeah, this kid, he was 15. And we looked at each other and we went, fucking hell, you know. Uh, <laughs> and then he started playing. And I tell you what, Paul, he was, he was, he knocked us out from the word go. He was amazing. So at the end of the, the, the little 45 minute set, um, we went backstage and we met Andy. It was Andy Fraser. And Koss knew, because Koss knew Alexis and Andy knew Alexis, Cost did the, the talking, you know, and he said, look, we've got this band. We need a bass player. Would you like to uh, come and have a jam with us at this pub called the Nags Head in Battersea? And Andy said, yeah, OK, you know, I'll give it a shot. He was kind of nonchalant, you know. Uh, I think he was, you know, playing his cards close to his chest. You know, he didn't want to commit. Anyway, uh, a few days later, we all got together in this pub called the Nags Head in Battersea in London. And from the word go, it just gelled. And really, that, that night, uh, Free was formed. Absolutely brilliant. And then you mentioned the, the, your first thoughts of, of hearing Paul, Paul Rogers. Um, I've spoken to many people, and they all talk about Paul as being one of the greatest vocalists around. I mean, what was your impressions right from the start? Did you think that this man has got it sort of thing? Well, I, I honestly, Paul, I didn't really have much to um, compare him with. I'd only been in London you know, less than a year, Mm-hmm. And I'd heard other vocalists, and there was another guy called Paul Brooks, who was the singer with Black Cat Bones, and he was okay. He wasn't anything special. But when there's something about Paul Rogers, um, he had that authenticity. You know, we were all into black music, the blues and soul and Otis Redding, yeah. Wilson Pickett. And Paul had this, you know, even at 19, he was six months younger than me, he had this command, um, that sort of raspy soul voice, uh, yeah, I mean, he, he, he knocked me out. And of course, <laughs> that was what, 50, nearly 53 years ago. And he's been knocking me out ever since. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and you mentioned there your ages. It's incredible to think you're talking 19, eight, I think Cost was a, maybe a year or so younger than you. And you've just mentioned yeah. Andy being 15, 16. And you, you knocked out the first album really, really quickly and you, tons of sobs. And it sounds like seasoned professional musicians when you listen back to that album, even now. Well, they, uh, yeah, uh, um, I think what, what we we were asked to do by Guy Stevens, who's the producer of Tundra Sob, was just really to play our club set. Because by the time we did Tundra Sobs, we'd been together, I think, six or seven months. And, but we'd done a lot of gigs, yeah. sort of molding. And, and Paul was writing songs, Paul Rogers. So we had a couple of his songs. Uh, Sweet Tooth, Over the Green Hills. So there were a couple of new songs, but they sandwiched, you know, the, the rest of the album, which was mainly our, our club set. And we knocked it out in a couple of days, quite honestly. Um, in, in between going back and forth and doing shows, 
we didn't sort of book the studio for two or three days. We'd do a, a few tracks and then go and do a couple of gigs and then come back. So I guess uh, the time period would be about a week, 800 quid. <laughs> phenomenal stuff phenomenal stuff and there's that uh, album and then followed free um something i want to touch on for for both those two early albums um is the artwork on them they're both very very different aren't they i mean the first album tons of sobs that the artwork on that is very i don't know the best way to describe it weird is, is that a fair way to say it well it was it was um we were kind of in in the thrall of Guy Stevens, you know, we were brand new. Yeah. We kind of did what the, the the record label suggested. You know, we, we became our own bosses pretty soon after that. But, you know, Guy Stevens had this mad idea of a Mickey Mouse in a glass coffin. And, <laughs> you know, it was back in those days, Paul, it was, you know, kind of surrealistic album covers. Yes. Yeah. And very arty. So we thought, what the hell going on with it? And then we had these uh, weird sort of posing sepia photos on the back. So, um, yeah, it was it was good. People still talk about it today. So we must have done something right. Now, fast forward a year to Free, and that was one of the best. I thought it was one of the most beautiful yeah. album covers, uh, the second album, which we did in L.A. You know, we had a very good photographer and the lady jumping across the sky. Yes. It was just a, a really classy cover. Um, and Free, the, the second album, saw us really coming into our own style. Once again, uh, Paul was writing songs with Andy this time. They had a very good uh, rapport for a few years. They wrote some lovely songs together. And we were just becoming more and more cohesive as a band. And, and I think Free... For me, is is the, my favourite album of all the three albums, followed by Fire and Water. Uh, but Fire and Water had a, a little song called All Right Now, which <laughs> kind of changes everything for us. Um, we were just finding our feet and uh, we were amassing uh, a fan base. You know, we're travelling all over uh, the UK and bits of Europe. So, yeah. Yeah, you were very well known for you, for your touring. You were a very hard-working band in terms of playing here, there and ever, especially across the UK. And then you, you mentioned it there. You had a little-known song called All Right Now. And now we love to hear the stories behind these big songs and these big hits and everything. It, now, this came on the back of um, a disappointing gig, shall we say, up north, didn't it? Yeah, it did. And and there's still... I, I still... Uh, I'm not in agreement with Paul Rogers where it was... <laughs> <laughs> I, I say it was Durham. He says it was Manchester. So, you know, it's but it's up there, up north. And, and we played to a university crowd. Now, university crowds, they're a very discerning bunch. We had this kind of medium-paced loping beat uh, that was kind of, um, uh, you know, on, on a lot of our songs. We'd never had a real sort of rabble-rousing type song. So at the end of this gig, we played our, whatever, 60-minute set or whatever, and by the time we, we hadn't even left the stage and the, the clapping had died down. And to, to cap it all, we had to walk through the audience oh, no. to get back to our dressing room. <laughs> it was one of those. It wasn't like at the back of the stage where you could do a quick exit. So by the time we walked you know, through the crowd back to the dressing room, we were like, oh, geez. And I, I believe Paul Rogers said, you know, we need a song that, can, that people can dance to. Plain and simple, that's all it was. And um, All Right Now was born in that uh, little dressing room at the back of the, of the gig. And um, I believe it was Andy who came up with the actual phrase. It's all right now, baby. He started bopping around the dressing room, you know, 
trying to coax it out of himself. And um, he came up with the phrase and Andy and Paul, you know, they worked on it for the next couple of weeks. And um, we started doing it at sound checks and uh, we did it at several shows. It started going down really well uh, because it had that and everyone was sort of, it, it just changed the whole atmosphere of, of the gig. And then we came to record it on the fire and water sessions and it was instant, you know. You talk about instant there, but it wasn't like you recorded it in one take, did you? It took a few takes oh, to, to get exactly how you wanted it. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, for the, the drummers out there, I was playing dun, 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 what we call eights on the hi-hat. One, two, three, four, five, six, yep. seven, eight, one, two, three. That's how I originally played the drums. And it was, ah, it just, it didn't really seem to swing. So I changed the drum to, to the, the right hand, to the bump, the bump, what we call fours yep. on the hi-hat. It changed the whole uh, atmosphere of, of the beat and hence, you know, the song. And it really swung. And um, that's what allowed me to do take after take after take. I believe, Paul, we did about 20 takes with starts and mistakes and we start again. Um, I think we ended up doing like using take number five or six, which went all the way through. Um, and, and that's the measure of a good song that you could play it again and again and again and not get tired of it. And what were your reactions then when you, you got to hear it back and oh, you got it down and you're happy? Great. It, it, we were knocked out. And in fact, um, we did this in Basing Street which is up in the West, uh, West 11 in, in London, where Island Records had their studio. And it was pretty late at night. And, um, you know, we finished it. And uh, Chris Blackwell, who was the, you know, the boss of Island Records, had an apartment above the studio. And I believe Paul said, we got to get him out of bed to listen to this. The engineer was like, what the, what are you, you crazy? He said, no, 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 you gotta, he's got to hear it. So we actually called him up. And he came down to the studio and we said, you got to hear this. And he said, all right. So we press play and um, I'll never forget. He's at the end of it because it was kind of long. It was like the original it was about five and a half minutes long. Yes. And yeah. he said, it's the hit. Wow. Yes. He said, but it's too long. <laughs> it's got to be on top of the pops. I mean, that was the golden key. In those days, if you're on top of the pops, yeah. you're guaranteed at least a top 10. He said, you got to do, we have to do an edit. Now, we never really heard of edits back in those days. We never had an occasion to edit a song. We just played it and that was it. So he said, I, I need you to go. I'll do the edit with the engineer where you actually, not like with Pro Tools now, where you can click and paste and you have to get a razor blade and cut a piece of, you know, intestine out of the song and we had to find they had to find this uh, piece that we could cut out the edit actually wasn't very good uh you can hear it uh most people know but it brought it down to about three minutes and 10 seconds which was just perfect and um yeah uh, the rest as they say is history Absolutely. You mentioned Top of the Pops there. It was obviously a huge British institution for many years, mm. but it was so close to, to not being on yeah. uh, on BBC at all, was it? Because of one, one line. line. Raise the parking rate. That was Paul. And, and Paul, I guess, you know, in his passion to sing it, the P became an F. <laughs> they thought they were saying fucking, you know, and, and, and um, 
Uh, Island Records got a call from the BBC saying, look, we, we think there's a profane word, you know, in, in the, that line, and we need to come down, we need to send a representative down from the BBC to listen to the isolated uh, vocal track. And he did. I mean, we had to, you know, get back in the studio and uh, we all wanted to be there. And he was a little old guy, you know, he had a clipboard and all that. And um, they played the isolated track. And sure enough, it's, you know, it was, it was like raise the parking, but the P was a little, a little like, like an F. So he's like fucking right. But the guy was quite nice about it. He said, that's all right. And he gave it a little tick. And, um, you know, he went back and said, it's okay. There's no profanity. They can play the song. And it got to number two. Thanks to Mungo Jerry. Yes. Yeah, it got to number two. Uh, it killed us. Uh, you know, people still play it to this day. It's played all over the world. And it, it, I, I still love playing it. I love playing the song. It's a great song. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And around that time, the All Right Now was the legendary Isle of Wight Festival of 1970. I spoke to uh, Rick Lee from 10 years after, not too long ago, and he oh, said yeah. it was absolute mayhem. What are your memories? What are your recollections? Because you guys were meant to be on on the Saturday night and you didn't go on until the Sunday morning or the Sunday lunchtime yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. And 10 years after, we're to blame slightly. <laughs> so, well, Saturday night was like obviously the, the marquee night because. There was Sly and the Family Stone. There was the ELP. There was, no, not ELP. Um, I'd have to see the lineup, but I know 10 years after we're on. And they were, I mean, TYA were just, oh, one hell of a band. I never thought they got the recognition yeah. in America that they, they should have gotten because they were so good. Um, anyway, the bottom line was, Paul, that we, we were flown out there by helicopter in Saturday afternoon. I believe we were going to go on about six or seven. And... Um, as you know, it just became mayhem. People ran over sets. Instead of playing 60 minutes, they played 75. The crowds were spilling in. No one was paying any money. The sound was bad. There were no monitors on that festival. Can you believe it? So anyway, we'd been there for several hours, and a guy was coming back to the caravan where we were saying, oh, another hour. Can you, can you wait another hour? So we'd have a little smoke, a little drink, you know. Come nine o'clock, we're like a little, you know, a little woozy. <laughs> and Black, Chris Blackwell was there, of course. And he said, you know what, guys, you're not going to go on because it, this is just crazy. He was very savvy. Um, you're going to go on tomorrow morning. Like I think we went on around 11 or noon. Um, we were very disappointed, but yeah. kind of secretly, it was, there was a lot of pressure relieved from us because we would have had to deal with probably a stage that was not together properly, um, a, a crazy crowd because by Saturday night, everyone was out of it. And, and yeah, we were secretly relieved, I think. So when we, we took the stage the next morning around 11.30 or 12, it was a beautiful sunny morning, very calm. Uh, and um, we knocked them out. You know, we, we went down really, really well. It was a lovely, a lovely experience. Yeah. Absolutely. And in terms of the band, then you, you kind of broke up, you reformed and then and then broke up again, didn't you? Just a couple of years later. And it, it, it's hard to say it's a regret or you wish it hadn't happened, but considering what happened afterwards with Bad Company and everything else. But do you look back and wish that the band had stayed together maybe just a little bit longer? Honestly, I do. I, I know Bad Company came out of free and Mott the Hoople and King Crimson, but I do wish that we hadn't have been so... It wasn't, and I'm, I'm telling, calling a spade a spade here, but it was really Andy and Paul's wish to to stop touring and it's free and, and try other 
um, avenues. Um, because what happened with All Right Now, it, it propelled us into another dimension. And, and we started doing different countries, you know, every other day instead of different towns in England. Uh, our workload tripled or quadrupled or whatever. It really multiplied. And we started, we were getting quite honestly, we were getting really tired. Then we had to do another album because we were contracted. And suddenly we were on this carousel going round and round. And Island Records really didn't, uh, they didn't step up and say, you know what, guys, take a break, take six months off or whatever, you're young. No, they, they perpetuated the workload. So Andy and Paul, you know, you got to remember, we were still only in our very early 20s, 21. Yep. Um, they said, we've had enough, we're, we're done. And, and Free broke up. And, and the, the ramifications of that were that Koss became very depressed and he got strung out on various drugs. He became really, really, really bad. And um, knowing addiction as I do now, uh, he should have gone into rehab. Yep. instead of just going back to his flat and, and uh, you know, trying to get sober. It all sounds very familiar tale. I was speaking to Mick Box from Uriah Heap, and he said pretty much the same thing, that the record company kind of worked you, and David Byron should have been given a chance to do this, that, and the other. And Yeah, yeah it's sad the way it is. But from your point of view, it must have been difficult watching um, what happened with Cost then, because obviously you were friends for a long time before that, and you, I think you lived together as well, uh, for a while as well, didn't you? We shared. The, I shared his apartment for a few months, uh, and then I got my own place, but I still get very close with him. Yeah. And it's funny she mentioned David Byron. God, I remember Ken Hensley. And, and, and David Byron was the first guy I know back in those days to die from his disease. And that was, God, nearly 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, wow, a blast from the past. So, yeah, what happened with Paul, I just got fed up with him. Because knowing now, because I'm in recovery myself, but knowing now... Uh, what I, I should have wished I had known then, he was an addict. He was completely screwed up with the, the drugs and he should have gone into, you know, sought medical, professional medical help. But I thought, screw it, I'm out of here. And I said, you know, basically, I said, you're on your own. And it, it's something that I, I regret to this day. So I went off, um, you know, and just had a sabbatical for a couple of months, during which time he got even worse. And then I got a call from Paul Rogers and saying, you know, our mate is really in bad shape and uh, we should really, let's get back together. And we got back together, Paul, really, to, uh, for him, for Koss. And that was not the best idea because, number one, he was, he was very weak and very not playing well at all. And we kind of got back together prematurely, you know. Uh, we, I think they still, Andy and Paul still had ideas of or desires to have their own bands so it was a very shaky reason to get back very honorable but very shaky and uh, of course it didn't last very long you know we broke up again for good yeah it's yeah. such a shame what happened with cost in the end because he was such an incredible guitarist and everything like that one of the best of us but anyway let's let's move on a little bit after the band you you had your little trip to brazil and you were there for a few months and then you came back and and helped to form what became another incredible group i mean a literal super group because we're talking about people from Mother Hoople and King Crimson, like you said. And so, so give us a quick brief rundown on how yourself and Paul Rogers managed to, 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 to help form this group then. Yeah, well, we, um, as you said, I was in Brazil and uh, I, I was away for about three or four months, about four months. And I got back 
in the uh, summer of 73. And I called Paul up and said, hey, man, how are you doing? He said, oh, I'm great. And he sounded really, you know, ah, life is good. And he said, I've been, I had this band piece. Uh, and we'd just been on the road with Mott the Hoople, opening for Mott the Hoople. And uh, I knew Mott because they were on Island Records. And so I'd met Mick, you know, crossed paths with him several times. I really liked him. He said, this guy, he's, so, he's a great player. He's funny. He's got some great songs. And um, I want to form a group with him. I said, okay. He said, would you want to play drums? I said, I'd love to. You know, me and Paul have always gotten on well. And um, uh, so we got together in in Paul's little cottage outside uh, Guildford in Surrey. And I met Mick properly for the first time. And he was so nice. He was funny. And and he played uh, Paul Rogers' song, Can't Get Enough, on, on a little reel-to-reel, you know, uh, reel-to-reel uh, tape recorder. And he said, oh, you know, Ian Hunter doesn't like it. He won't play this. And Paul, when Paul Rogers heard it, he said, you know, this is a fucking hit. <laughs> you really think so? You know, it's a little little drum machine. And he said, it's a hit. And I believe it was the first song we ever played in the studio. Uh, it was one of the first songs we did in rehearsal. And, and we played for six months without a bass player. We were okay. auditioning bass player. And we heard about Boz, Boz Burrell, right at the end of, he was the last guy on the list. Because quite honestly, we didn't like, uh, we weren't crazy about King Grimsley. It wasn't our, our sort of music. And Boz turned out to be the best of them all. And um, I believe it was the first song we ever recorded Can't Get Enough and took off, you know. Interesting, isn't it? Now let's talk about Bad Company then. I mean... To, to, to start with, you had incredible musicians. You were, like I said, a super group. You had, you had the, everything there. It was all down. And then you signed up to Led Zeppelin's label, Swan Song. I mean, that's the biggest band in the world, wasn't it? And, and Peter Grant involved. I mean, how did that happen? Well, you, you put your finger on it. I mean, we, we had this band and um, this was before Boz joined. It was only me, Mick and Paul Rogers. And, and Paul, we were sitting around and I said, well, who's, you know, who's the biggest band? Led Zeppelin. Uh, Who's their manager? Well, this guy called Peter Grant. And here's the, the, the weird dynamic. We had a, a New Zealand roadie in free called Graham White. Led Zeppelin had a New Zealand roadie called Clive Coulson. And they were, they were kind of soulmates. They, they come over from New Zealand, you know, on, on the boat together. And they kept in touch. And Graham called Clive Coulson, Led Zeppelin, and he got Peter Grant's number and he gave it to Paul. And Paul, typical Paul, you know, he's not afraid of anything. <laughs> he called up um, Peter Grant and said, you know, we've got this band, you know, we'd love you to manage us. <laughs> not, would you come and see it? We want you to manage us. And he said, oh, yeah, I've heard about you. Uh, you know, it's a small village, the rock and roll, yes, especially in, in England. It's such a small country. He said, yeah, I've heard you've got a band again. I'll come and see you. And this is a great story. This shows what a savvy guy Peter Grant was. So we were rehearsing in this little village hall in um, outside Guildford in Surrey. And we were there all afternoon. We were waiting and waiting. Anyway, he's late and there's no cell phones. So we're playing our eight or nine songs. And we, we're using this standing bass player. It was okay, not great, but it was all right. Um, and about five o'clock, Peter Grant finally walks in three hours late. Oh, gee, we called him Peter Grant, but. Um, his, his nickname was G, which we used later on. 
when we got to know him. <laughs> and uh, we said, oh, Peter, we're so glad you're here, man, and you want a cup of tea or a drink or something. We'll, we'll play you the songs. He said, no, I've heard them. We go, what? How do you mean you've heard them? He said, well, I've been here an hour. I've been sitting out in the car park in my car with the window rolled down, listening to you through the, the windows. <laughs> he said, I, I figured you'd be maybe a little nervous, so I wanted to hear you in your own environment. And he said, we're going, wow. Straight away, we're like, wow, this is this guy's good. We didn't say it. He said, oh, okay. He said, I like what I heard. And um, we, we're forming a, a, a record label with Led Zeppelin. Me and the boys, Led Zeppelin, would you like to be on it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, let me... Silly question. Yes, we would. And uh, then he offered to carry my cymbals to, to my van. And I was like, you know... <laughs> So that was our very first meeting with Peter Grant, and uh, it, it was a it was a perfect storm, Paul. You know, we had Led Zeppelin, their first label. We had a band of four guys. Well, Buzz arrived a couple of months later, um, but we we were just free of those monkeys on our backs from our previous bands, and uh, we we took off like a rocket. Incredible stuff. And then just talking about that first album, I mean, I'm guessing you guys had a lot of control over that because you, you said before about record labels being quite on your back about this, that and the other and various things. Whereas with, with this setup, you were kind of um, free to get on with doing what you wanted and there was no um, pressures about what you could perform or what sort of styles or what you could do or anything like that, was there? No. I, and, and Peter Grant made it clear from the get-go that we were, you know, he never got involved with what Zeppelin were playing. You know, Jimmy kind of took care of all that and and although we had a couple of albums uh, produced by Ron Neverson, and uh, we were actually, I don't know why he got his name on, on a couple of the albums, but he did. But we really took the reins. And what happened, this is a, a great backstory to the first album. John Paul Jones was not getting on with Zeppelin. And he actually left the band. While they were all set up in this wonderful manner, he called up Peter and he said, I'm, I'm out of here. I can't take... Bonzo's drinking and the, 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 you know, the carousing. You know, he was a very serious musician, uh, John, John Paul. So he left the band. And, and what happened was during this time when Peter was trying to get John Paul back in the band, all the equipment and the, the horse lunges manor was just waiting to be filled. So he called Paul up and said, listen, John Paul Jones has got the flu. Um, do you want to you want to record your album? And Paul said, "Yeah, hell yeah!" Because we've been doing the same songs, you know, rehearsing them, rehearsing them. And um, he said, "Yeah, hell yeah!" So we went in there like uh, you know, like greyhounds let out of the trap. And we, I think, we did that whole album once again in in about a week. Yeah, it was a great album. I love it. To this day it was a great album yeah yeah and you had a run of great albums as well didn't you bad company and holy water and straight shooter and run with the pack and all that sort of stuff and you were the only member of the band that, that saw the whole way through didn't you with bad company yeah. i've been for better or for worse i've played every day that bad company's ever done and yeah you know like any like any band that's been together a long time there's been ups and downs and yeah. mishits and so on and so forth and you mentioned holy water and I feel that, you know, for, for people who are interested in bad company, I have to address uh, the Brian Howe era. And, yeah, straight off, I have to say, although we kept the, the name alive when Paul backed out and wanted to do other things, um, it was a period that 
I feel um, the band took a different direction. You know, it became more of a, a hair band, if you want, and away from the, the, the soulful, uh, mm-hmm. you know, the blues rock yeah. soul that Bad Company was known for. Um, I have a few regrets because we didn't get on with Brian. And I won't knock him because he's, he's now passed away. We had our differences and that's the way it goes. But, he, you know, he was a hard worker and, and we made some good, some good music. I'm not yeah. knocking the music. We made a couple of good albums. And it's funny, you know, I, I have to remember this band has been around nearly 50 years. And there are, there are generations that were brought up on Brian, Brian Howe. Uh, albums, you know the, um, and and you know I've read some on uh, some remarks on the uh, on Facebook, Bad Company's Facebook, especially when Brian passed away last year, that mm-hmm. you know they weren't familiar with Paul Rogers' uh, era, you know. So I just have to bear that in mind. So yeah, I mean um, we we took a different direction, and for nearly over six seven years, you know, we worked with Brian, and um, and then he left. And we got back on track. Uh, we had Robert Hart singing for a, um, a, a couple of years. He was great. He was much more in Paul Rogers' uh, vein of yeah. singing. And he, I like I like Robert. He was a, a good guy and a very good singer. And then Paul rejoined, and uh, we've been together ever since. Absolutely. And just redressing that point, then, because obviously when Paul decided to leave Bad Company. Um, I spoke to Jolyn Turner as well, and he said at one stage he was being considered for, for the part, and he tried out, and as well with he was looking at Foreigner and things like that, and then Deep Purple got the call. I mean, was there any ever a point when Paul Rogers left that you thought maybe we should stop Bad Company, or was it just full guns ahead from you guys? No, honestly, there wasn't. Um, we had such a good run, and it, you know we we got I guess we got influenced by Armit Ertigan, the head of Atlantic. Yeah. We said you got a great band here, guys, and and I know it sounds like heresy now that you know to get another singer in, uh, but we were persuaded to to go. And you know when Brian came in, uh, you know we sold a, a couple of albums that went into sold in the millions. Yes, and, yeah. it, it no, it wasn't, I, and and it was kind of like a means to an end. I do regret it because we we didn't get on. It became quite apparent that Brian Howe on stage was a lot different to the Brian Howe in the studio, who was a very hard worker. You know, he, he, his music wasn't really what, what moved me, but it was good. I wasn't knocking mm-hmm. it. But on stage and on the road, we just, no, we, we just didn't get on. And just um, one story that always makes me smile when I hear you tell it um, of your time in Bad Company was the shark in the bathtub, which ended up getting you banned from a hotel chain. Can you tell that for us? Because I just love to hear it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, there's a, a hotel in Seattle on, on the overlooking the sea called the Edgewater Inn. And uh, you can rent rods, you know, in the, the lobby. And fish from your window. Most of the, you know, the the ocean-facing rooms, you can cast a rod. And so me and Boz were up there. And we were due to leave to go down to Portland, Oregon, which is about a, an hour's flight away. And um, we had a couple of spliffs, you know, we were just mooching, waiting for the call. And suddenly, you know, Boz gets this tug on the end of his line. And I said, reel it in, Boz, reel it in. So, you know, he's reeling it in and suddenly it's, yeah, it's this pretty hefty looking shark about four <laughs> foot and it's, you know, it's meaty and it's flapping around. And I said, fucking throw it back. 
No, Boz, Boz is an avid fisherman. He loves fishing. I'm going to get this in. And he brings it into the room through, through the window. And he, you know, he manages to get the hook out of the mouth. And the thing is flapping around on the carpet. And, pause, and suddenly the phone rings. And it's Clive, our tour manager, saying, hey, where are you guys? You know, the, the cars are here. We've got to go to the airport. And Boz says, we'll be there, we'll be there in a minute. Don't worry, we're coming. This thing is... He says, I've got an idea. I said, just throw it out in the bloody window. Said, no, 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 no. I don't want it to get hurt. He's, not, he's pulled this hook out of his mouth. Said, Let's put it in the bath. Run the bath quick. So I thought, anything for a quiet life. Jesus. So I run the bath. We get about, you know, two feet of water in it. Boz picks this thing up. It's slapping away. And he lit, puts it in the bath. We pull the shower curtains and get the hell out of there. So smelling a fish, I might add. So we do the flight. It's about 400 miles south, 300 miles south of Seattle. And we drive into this other uh, place. And Clive always goes in and gets the keys for our room so we don't have to, you know, go into the lobby. And he comes out with this look of thunder on his face. He says, you, Boz, Simon, were you, you were in Boz's room, right? And we're going, uh-oh. Yeah, we were. <laughs> he says, well, um, the maid was in the room and apparently she was cleaning and she pulled back the shower and there's a shark in there and it's kind of flapped around. She slipped, she sprained her wrist and banged her head and she's suing us. And we're banned. This is a chain, the same chain of hotels that uh, in Edgewater in Seattle. We're banned. We've got to find another fucking hotel, idiots. <laughs> you oh, couldn't yeah. make it up. <laughs> You can't make it up, Paul, I tell you. <laughs> Absolutely incredible. Um, now, as well as Free and Bad Company, I mean, you've worked with some other legends, Wilson Pickett, Ray Charles, Jerry Lee Lewis, Ringo Starr. I mean, you've you've drummed on stage with Led Zeppelin. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that bit. Oh, well, um, the one that I remember, apparently I drummed twice, and I know this is lunacy, but I, I, play, I played in L.A. with them at the Forum. Don't really remember that much about it, but wow. I was... <laughs> really out of it in those days. Um, I do vaguely remember. But no, the, the one that stands out is Munich, Munich, Germany. And uh, I'm, I, we weren't doing anything. And I tagged along because me and Bonzo were like soul brothers. And he said, come over, you know, come and hang with us for a few days. And, and the, what I loved about Zeppelin back in those days was they were doing relatively small arenas. They weren't doing massive stadiums and it, it was a chance to see zeppelin the band without all the lasers and dry ice and they were absolutely astonishing they were wonderful um and it was great to see them from the side of the stage for two or three shows three shows and on the second show at the end of it i was in the dressing room with, with bonzo and he says hey do you want to play a whole lot of, uh yeah a whole lot of love in munich the final the final gig i said whoa I was like, wow, be careful what you wish for, right? I said, yeah, you know, yeah, <laughs> easy. I didn't say easy, but I said, yeah, I love it. He said, all right, come round to my hotel tomorrow night. We got a day off and uh, Munich the next night. So come round to, to my hotel. So I went round to the hotel thinking we were going to go to some studio where there'd be two kits, you know, and catered and we'd be able to. And so I call him up. He says, yeah, come on up. Okay, so I went up to his room and there's twin beds. 
And he sat on one bed and I'm sat on the other. We're facing each other. He says, right, it starts. I'm thinking, this is it. This is the rehearsal. <laughs> and it dawned on me that this was it. Hands, you know, on our thighs. And he goes, so after, after about two minutes, there's a bomb, 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 bomb. Yeah. I wanted to say, John, I know the fucking song, <laughs> but I didn't. And then I do. You come in after four bars. And then do, and then you'll have a little bit of a thing while I take a rest. And then I'll have a little bit of a thing when you take a rest. And, and it goes on for about 12 minutes. You got it? I said, can we just do it one more time? You know, because <laughs> it's a lot to take in, John. Anyway, it, uh, it went off great it was absolutely wonderful and um I'll, I'll never forget that uh, and and you can see it on youtube actually uh, this is before iphones and things someone had shot it on a super 8 and you hear um robert saying you know is gonna bring a friend of ours out you know that birmingham accent yeah. i'm gonna bring a friend of ours out from bad company simon kerr and the place went went crazy and uh wow. you know what paul that was the last time i saw bonzo really but, he died later that year. He died, and it was uh, um, uh, it was the end of an era because, you know, and I get quite emotional bringing it up because um, that was the end of Zeppelin. Peter Grant went into seclusion, and it, pretty much the end of Swan Song, and uh, and then Lennon was shot later that year, and it was just the end of a horrible, horrible year, and and Bad Company broke up about two years later, you know. For a long time, you know. Yeah. Didn't come back in until, uh, God, about 12 years later, 94, 95, maybe even 96. So. Incredible stuff. So we've talked about some of your bands and the other people you've worked with. Is there anybody that you wish you'd have worked with? You never got the chance to, or you, or you kind of, you kind of bucket list, it's not going to happen, but the one person you wish you could have played with? Oh, I'd love to play with Elvis. You know, the, the old Elvis. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, God, what a great question. Hendrix. Oh, Hendrix. Would have, I would have loved. Because the thing about Jimmy was was he was just that era before us. Mm-hmm. And even though he was only 27 when he passed away, he was back into actually playing. And he was playing with Buddy Miles, who was a very simple, solid drummer. And, um, yeah, I, I would have loved to play with Jimmy. Jeff Beck. Um, there was there was a rumour when Bad Company was really having a, a hiatus Jeff Beck and Jack Bruce and me, um, that would have been, they wanted to put a band together and do some shows in Japan. It never happened, but I, I would have loved to play with Jeff. Uh, been phenomenal. I got to play with Jack, you know, in Ringo. Uh, I got to play with, with quite a few great musicians in with Ringo, so I'm very lucky to have done what I've done. Um, now, I know you recently put on a virtual show, didn't you? So what, what are you up to nowadays then, Simon? Well, right now, I'm just waiting for the band to... Uh, get back together again next year. I don't think there's going to be anything until next year, quite honestly, Paul. Um, so, I, you know, I've had this little, not little, but it, it's something that I've always wanted to do was my own solo shows. And I, I play guitar and piano and play drums, and I've got a great little band. Well, not little. I mean, they're a great band. They're called The Empty Pockets from Chicago, and they played on my last solo album. We're going to do some solo shows this year. Um, and it, you know what? I don't really make any money out of it. I just love to play. And while Bad Company is, 
you know, on ice, as it were. I, I'll, what I like about uh, playing these solo shows, it keeps me musically stimulated because I love playing, uh, whether it's guitar, piano or drums. I love writing songs and I've got solo albums out and, and it keeps me stimulated. So there you go. Fantastic stuff. So as we talked about, you've had some incredible musicians that you've worked with. You've done solo albums. You've done a, a, a movie score as well recently. I mean, you've pretty much done everything. And th- yeah. Is there anything that, that Simon looks at and thinks, that's next or if only I could do that? Well, I would like to do a proper movie score. That's really something that I, I, I could probably do into my old age. Uh, and and the, the movie that I did was only a short. It was like an indie, like 30 minutes. Uh, so it really just kind of got me dipping my yeah, toes. Taste for it. Yeah. But I, I would really very much like to do a, you know, a full-length movie. And, yeah, I, if you'd have asked me a couple of years ago, I would have said, yeah, I want to go on tour and do my own solo stuff. You know, the world has changed, Paul, and it's, it's not, you know, it's just not healthy anymore to go to different countries and yeah. to – I'm too old for it. You know? <laughs> I'm going to go and play – to you know a thousand people opening up for someone i've been there and i've done it um and it's time for to pass the torch to other other people but i still want to play music i still write songs score a movie do the occasional gig that's fine but the grand part of me touring and playing to arenas outside of bad company that's that's off the table now. It's off the table. And you mentioned your age there. You don't look a, you got like a year over 30. I tell you, honestly, you've got some sort of Benjamin Button thing going on. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm, you know, I'm looking after myself now. I've got to, my wife looks after me really well. I, I don't drink or take drugs anymore. And uh, I quit smoking the whole thing. And I eat very, uh, you know, good stuff now and vitamins and smoothies and vegetarian, all that boring stuff. <laughs> but it's, it's keeping me alive. And Good stuff. Healthy. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure chatting yeah. with you, Simon. Um, I wish you the best of luck for everything going forward and uh, stay healthy. Thank you, Paul. i got to compliment you on your questions and the way you can conducted yourself. It was, it, you know, an interview is only as good as its questions and presenter. And you ticked all the boxes, my friend. Oh, it's a very big compliment. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. <laughs> okay, mate. God bless. There you go, the brilliant Simon Kirk there. I really hope you enjoyed that chat. Very open, very honest, wasn't he? He's got some incredible stories as well. Now, I've spent most of this past weekend listening to Free and Bad Company, and you forget just how many amazing songs they've got in the locker. Now, it was interesting. I put out a little poll, and I mentioned this to Simon too, but I didn't include it on the final cut for the interview. But I put a poll online to get everyone's take on this. It was a simple question. Which band do you prefer, Free or Bad Company? And the interesting results showed that the majority of those voting Free were British, while the majority of those voting Bad Company were American. Now, it's kind of borne out when you look at the chart history of both bands as well. I saw a couple of articles referring to Free as one-hit wonders in America, which is absolutely crazy, really, considering the hits they had here in the UK, including three top 10 singles and a little bit of love as well, which is a great song, just missed out peaking at number 13. And as well as that, they had three top 10 albums over here. As for Bad Company, though, by comparison, when you look at their albums, they had five different records go platinum in the US, three of those going multi-platinum, whereas in the UK, it was only the first two albums that went gold. Now, I say gold like it's a small feat, but it's still incredible. But in comparison, you can see the differences between the fan bases. So to that end, make sure you dig deeper into the back catalogues of both groups. It's well worth it. 
And it's at this stage of the proceedings that I give you my favourite five songs from the band my guest is from. So I'm going to have to pick between the two. So being British, I'm going to go with Free. So here's my favourite five songs from Free, according to Vintage Rock Pod. At five is a song that doesn't get enough credit for me from an album which is underrated too, in my opinion. It's got an awesome feeling groove to this song, bluesy and rich. It's from the Highway album in 1970. And number five is The Steeler. Number four is another of the band's anthems from the 1972 album Free At Last. It's upbeat and positive and rolls along nicely. At number four is A Little Bit Of Love. My number three is from the smash hit album Fire and Water, although it wasn't a single. It's another of those brilliant songs with an infectious, lolloping groove. It's unusual in that all the instruments seem to be playing in competition with each other. Andy Fraser's bass work is brilliant, including the bass solo. I mean, how many bass solos do you hear these days? And number three is Mr. Big. At number two for me is the song. It's that song, the one that's been given the awards for the crazy amounts of radio plays it's received over the last 50 years. It truly is an anthem and needs no introduction. Also from the Fire and Water album from 1970, at number two for me is All Right Now. And at number one is from the Heartbreaker album. From the first second, it's big and it's ballsy. Paul Rogers' voice is brilliant, the music is tight, and let's be honest, what we all want is love in a peaceful world. My favourite track of theirs and the number one free song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Wishing Well. There you go, my favourite five songs from the band Free. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this list. Where do you agree? Where do you disagree? Drop me an email, vintagerockpod at gmail.com or message me on the socials. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube too. Give us a like and follow on there as well. Also, check out my website, vintagerockpod.com and while you're there, you can join the ever-growing list of VRP VIPs who signed up for the once-weekly newsletter to make sure you don't miss anything out on any of the latest news and scoops from the world of Vintage Rock Pod. Also, don't forget Vintage Rock Pod Side 2 comes out every Friday. It's the companion show to this one. Now, last week's show featured two interviews, one with Captain Sensible from The Damned and another with John Palumbo with US prog veterans Crack the Sky. And I'm delighted to say that this Friday's show will feature an interview with a rock and roll Hall of Fame lead singer who we've already had on the main show already this series. And I'll be catching up with him to discuss some exciting new work he's working on as well. So don't miss that one. But that's it for this week's main show then. Until next episode, remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett.
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 